I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. When scientists embrace an idea about how things work, they may abandon critical thinking and stop examining the evidence. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Neuroscientists have accepted the hypothesis that beta amyloid collecting in plaques in the brain causes Alzheimer's disease. Funders have put all their bets on this approach, and drug companies have spent billions developing compounds to reduce amyloid. We have relatively little to show, despite all those resources and research. Are we working from the wrong hypothesis? Psychiatrists talk about the serotonin theory of depression. How strong are the data? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, challenging the science of Alzheimer's disease and depression. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, At the peak of the pandemic, many people did not tell the whole truth about their health status and behavior. In a survey of 1,700 people, more than 700 admitted that they had cheated on COVID-19 preventive behaviors or misled others about their status. The survey was conducted online in December 2021 and included equal numbers of people who had had COVID, those who had not had COVID and were vaccinated, and those who had experienced neither vaccinations nor COVID infections. The authors write in JAMA Network Open that some people did not disclose a recent or active COVID infection prior to an in-person visit. Others failed to tell a physician's office or clinic that they had symptoms of COVID or thought they might be infected. Unvaccinated people sometimes claimed to have been vaccinated, while others who were supposed to quarantine represented that they were exempt from quarantine. In general, they often suggested that they were taking more precautions than was the case. The investigators also asked whether people sometimes avoided testing when it was indicated or broke quarantine rules. Respondents justified their actions on the basis that they wanted to exercise personal freedom or they didn't think COVID-19 was real, among other reasons. According to the investigators, younger people and those who professed less belief in science were more likely to have misrepresented themselves. Unfortunately, failing to follow precautions and not informing others accurately can aid the spread of the virus and may spread transmission of future variants or viruses. Influenza is on the rise. In Australia, the recent flu season hit early and hard. Now, early indications are that a similar pattern is evolving in North America. The health commissioner for the state of New York described this year's flu as early and aggressive. The CDC is reporting significant numbers of cases of type A H3N2 in Texas, Georgia, and the District of Columbia. Other states that are showing moderate levels of influenza activity include South Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee. Although it will be several weeks before we know how well the flu shots match this year's viral strains, Experts are urging people to seek protection early, before influenza becomes widespread. Colonoscopies made unexpected headlines this week. 
Research reported in the New England Journal of Medicine suggested that the effectiveness of colonoscopy in preventing colon cancers is surprisingly unimpressive. The study was large, including more than 84,000 volunteers in Norway, Poland, and Sweden. The researchers invited 28,000 people to undergo screening colonoscopies, and nearly 12,000 actually did so. Those not invited to get a colonoscopy received usual care, and the investigators collected health data on everyone for 10 years. Headlines suggested that if you were to invite 455 people to undergo a screening colonoscopy, you would only prevent one case of colon cancer. Even more discouraging, there was no statistically significant difference in the death rate between those invited to have colonoscopy and those in the usual care group. Before you give up on colonoscopies, though, there are some caveats. Not everyone who was invited to get a colonoscopy in reality did so. Remember, less than half of those invited followed through with the procedure. The researchers point out that if you compare only those who actually had a colonoscopy, there was a 30% lower risk of developing colon cancer. The risk of cancer death was reduced by 50%. Exercise can make your muscles stronger. Now research indicates it may also strengthen your memory. A recent study reviewed a year of detailed activity data from 113 Fitbit wearers. The volunteers also took a set of cognitive tests to determine how well their memories were working. According to the researchers, people who stayed active had better memories. What's more, people who regularly engaged in intense exercise, like running, did better on spatial memory problems. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. For decades, Alzheimer's disease research rested upon a foundation of a sticky protein called beta amyloid. Autopsies reveal that people who die of Alzheimer's disease have plaques full of beta amyloid in their brains. Drug companies have spent billions of dollars developing drugs to reduce the amount of amyloid plaque in the brains of people with signs of cognitive decline. They've had little success until recently, and even now the long-term benefits of reducing beta amyloid in the brain remain controversial. Questions have been raised about the integrity of the original research implicating beta amyloid in the development of Alzheimer's disease. To learn more about that, we turn to the scientist who identified potential problems with the images that were used to support the theory. Dr. Matthew Schrag is Assistant Professor of Neurology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and Director of the Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy Clinic. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Matthew Schrag. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Dr. Schrag, for the last few decades, the amyloid beta buildup in the brain approach has been the leading theory behind Alzheimer's disease. Hundreds of millions, maybe even 
billions of dollars have been spent trying to rid the brain of amyloid plaque buildup. And candidly, we haven't seen much clinical benefit. You kind of upset the amyloid apple cart several weeks ago when you reported some troublesome images that have been published in numerous numerous journals. Can you tell us what you discovered, how you discovered it, and what has happened since? Because it has been a real furor. Hmm. Well, I, um, I appreciate that. I was... Um contracted to do uh, some research integrity type uh, evaluation related to uh, an unrelated concern associated with the pharmaceutical company Cassava Sciences. Uh, And in the course of conducting that investigation, I encountered a couple of papers from a set of uh, investigators uh, at the University of Minnesota, where a number of the uh, images just didn't look right. Um, we ex- use extensively a technique called Western blotting, uh, which is a way of measuring the amount of a particular protein in the brain. And these papers used this technique to measure the amount of beta amyloid in the, in the brain and the various different types of uh, beta amyloid that are formed in the brain. And the end result of that experiment is a photograph. And those photographs, to me, just didn't look natural. Uh, sometimes you might see uh, pictures in a magazine or online and think they, you know, they look like they've been touched up. They look airbrushed or something's just not quite right about them. And that was my reaction uh, to these images. And it prompted me uh, to go and look at the body of work um, that this group of investigators had been involved with. And that brought to my attention a couple of very high profile papers um, which had similar images that didn't look quite right. And that was the beginning of this process. Now, Dr. Schrag, you mentioned a Western blot, and I'm assuming that this is a special type of scientific technique that ordinary people like myself would have a very hard time interpreting. Is that correct? You know, it is a very useful tool. Um, it's not as massively complex as it sounds. When we start brand new students in the laboratory, this is often the first technique that I teach to them. Um, and it was the very first technique that I learned when I first uh, started working in a laboratory. So there is some expertise required, but it's it's not massively complicated. Essentially, what happens is we take a sample, whatever we're studying. In this case, they were mostly brain samples. uh, And the tissue is ground up and turned into a liquid phase. And then it is separated in a gel so that all of the proteins um, separate from each other and form these little black bands. And we use a bunch of techniques to, to make the protein that we're interested stand out. And it turns up in this photograph as just a black smudge or a black blot, which is why we call it a Western blot. And how black and how big that blot is tells us how much of that protein is there. So it's a way of measuring how much of a protein is there and how big it is and a number of other features about it. Well, the original photograph was published, I think, as far back as 2006 in a journal called Nature. And it really helped drive over the last 10, 20 years this research into amyloid beta and how it may cause Alzheimer's disease. Why did your 
concerns, your questions, cause such consternation in the neuroscience community? Well, you know, the beta amyloid hypothesis has been around for quite a long time. And in fact, it predated uh, this paper by a considerable amount. It was formally introduced in the early 1990s. But there were some clinical trials in the early 2000s that didn't uh, didn't perform so well. And so when this paper came along in the mid-2000s, there had been some criticism of the hypothesis. And this study, along with a couple of other very influential studies, was part of a reformulation of the beta amyloid hypothesis. Basically, the original hypothesis said that these giant plaques that form in the brain, these big clumps of a little protein called beta amyloid, are toxic and are poisoning the brain, causing memory loss. But when the clinical trials failed, they successfully removed these plaques and patients still didn't get better. So the, the new theory, the reformulation, was that perhaps it wasn't the giant clumps after all. Perhaps it was much smaller clumps of beta amyloid, just two, three, four, five, ten, twelve threads of beta amyloid stuck together instead of these very large plaques that were the poisonous component. And when people talk about the beta amyloid hypothesis now, they're often referring to this, what we call oligomer reformulation. And this paper was a big part of launching that th- that new reformulated version of the hypothesis because it was one of the first, if not the first paper, to show that one of these specific oligomers or small clumps of beta amyloid, in this case, a clump of 12 strands, could actually cause rats to have memory problems. And then along came the drug companies. And how many drugs have been tested over the last decade or two to help eliminate beta amyloid. But the outcomes have been so very disappointing. That's absolutely right. I don't think at this point we can claim a single robustly effective uh, drug. There's obviously been a lot of controversy around one of the most recent uh, candidates, aducanumab, which was FDA approved recently. But it's certainly, even that one is not a robust success. It doesn't show huge clinical changes for patients. Well, in fact, we were surprised that the FDA actually approved Aduhelm, which is its brand name. Aducanumab is the generic name. Because although it does show that it can help reduce the amount of beta amyloid in the brain. I don't know how you do that, but apparently you can measure that. It didn't show that people did any better on their cognitive tests. And it didn't show that people did any better with the cognitive challenges of daily life. Can you tell us Do you have any explanation for what the FDA is uh, trying to accomplish with this? Well, I think that it's been a very long time since we've had a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And I think that this can lead to desperation. I think we recognize this optimism bias, you know, this notion that, you know, that, that we really want things to work. But I think that we owe it to patients to um, maintain very high standards. I think it's important to point out in the case of aducanumab that it is not an entirely safe treatment. That a significant percentage of patients develop uh, swelling in the brain, and some of them develop uh, some bleeding in the brain. Uh, fortunately, most are not 
horribly severe, although a few are. It's not an inexpensive treatment. And so the downsides are very real. And so I think it's important that we maintain high standards and make sure that the drugs that, that are approved are brought to the clinic are effective and deliver on the promise that we're making to patients. Dr. Schrag, I guess what concerns me the most about not just your discovery, but but this whole process is what I called groupthink. It seems like the neuroscience community has been very slow to recognize the problems with the beta amyloid hypothesis and also equally slow in considering other possible causes and treatments that might be promising. So have we missed important opportunities over the last 15, 20 years? Well, I think certainly I and many others would like to see more uh, diversity in the in the targets that are being developed uh, as, as clinical therapeutics for this disease. The amyloid hypothesis itself is a perfectly rational concept, and there's a lot of uh, supportive data that, that make it very appealing. And I can understand why uh, so many people have uh, so aggressively gone after this approach to treating the disease. But at some point, we have to face the reality that the clinical trials have failed over and over and over again. There is a logic to sticking with uh, a clinical program until it's been adequately tested. This would certainly not be the first time where a concept failed in the first few clinical trials before all the variables were properly controlled and dialed in. But I wonder if we aren't getting to the point where the biology of this disease is trying to tell us something, that these clinical trials aren't working because beta amyloid is, is not the only or not the major driver um, and I think that it's certainly time to uh, to look at other targets. You're listening to Dr. Matthew Schrag, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and Director of the Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy Clinic. After the break, we'll find out if we should think of beta amyloid buildup as the cause of Alzheimer's disease or as a consequence. How does beta amyloid help fight infection? Dr. Schreck's research may have applications beyond Alzheimer's disease. Might it help people with long COVID? How did Dr. Schrag's colleagues react when he raised concerns about those Western blot images? We'll also consider how we should view hypotheses in science. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. And by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. 
And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Once a theory gets entrenched in the scientific literature, it's very difficult to examine it objectively. Today, we're considering two such hypotheses. First, the idea that beta-amyloid plaques are the cause of Alzheimer's disease. Later, we'll discuss the serotonin theory of depression. Our guest is Dr. Matthew Schrag, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Schrag, as we understand it, beta-amyloid actually has some function in the brain as an um, antimicrobial compound, it has led us to wonder whether this buildup of beta amyloid that we see together with Alzheimer's disease, whether the buildup of beta amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's disease or whether maybe it's a consequence. Do we have any, any way of looking into that? I know we don't have any clarity at the moment. Well, I think it's an important question whether we can reliably answer it or not. I think that that it's one of the key questions. It's understandable to think that beta amyloid is, is a cause or even perhaps the cause of the disease because when you look at human brain with the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease under a microscope, there is simply a massive amount of this protein there. And so it's not, it's not irrational to think that this is the driving problem. But I think, again, the clinical trials are the last experiment in this, uh, in, in this hypothesis to really confirm that this is what's causing the disease. It's also important to point out that we can understand the cause of a disease in, when it's uh, a genetically driven disease. And there are a few rare versions of Alzheimer's disease that are caused by specific mutations, and all of them are linked in one way or another to the production of beta amyloid. So there's a case to be made that beta amyloid is is a cause, if not the cause, of Alzheimer's disease. But it doesn't mean that just because beta amyloid is important to how Alzheimer's disease occurs, that it's necessarily a modifiable target. It doesn't mean that taking it away necessarily fixes the disease. And I think that's where the clinical trials might be getting into trouble. We have spoken with your colleagues at Harvard, one Dr. Moya, who has, has subsequently died, sadly, but they have proposed what I'll call is the infection theory of, um, of Alzheimer's disease and the fact that maybe beta amyloid has, as Terry said, antimicrobial activity to try and fight off infection. And Ruth Itchak at, um, in, at Oxford, I believe, has proposed a herpes-type etiology, causative uh, role in the development of Alzheimer's disease. And now there's you know, all of this interest around COVID and long COVID and brain fog and the idea that, well, maybe viruses are doing some nasty things, not just to... Uh, brain function, but also to the blood vessels that supply the brain. So may, maybe you can help us better understand your research in the in the field of microvasculature and why that might be important in uh, in, in brain functioning. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to tell you about some of this. I'll tell you that 
the infection hypotheses um, are probably not the most mainstream um, explanation for why Alzheimer's happens, but certainly they're not unreasonable as an alternative hypothesis. It's not been as simple as figuring out what the infection is and, and treating it. You know, it, it's been much more complex than that. But we are definitely seeing evidence that there is inflammation in the brain and, and that uh, inflammation may be driving some of the changes. Uh, our work here at the Shrag Lab is focused on understanding the role of small blood vessels in this process. What we've found over the last several decades as a field is that these antibodies that aren't doing so well in clinical trials work beautifully in our little mouse models uh, until you add blood vessel diseases to the mice, and then they don't respond so well to the treatments either. And I think that what we're learning is that the, the, the blood vessels of the brain are a critical variable in the, in the response to beta amyloid. And of course, the complications that we're seeing from patients treated with antibodies against beta amyloid are often related to cerebral amyloid angiopathy or deposition of beta amyloid in the blood vessels causing vascular deterioration. So I think conceptually, we need to embrace the complexity of this disease, that we need to know that, that diseases that happen in old age are often more than one thing and that the treatable targets may not be quite as obvious. And it's why we need to be open to looking at treating blood vessels and we need to be open to treating inflammation and, and other targets. And do you have any thoughts on long COVID and uh, what may be millions of people complaining about brain fog and cognitive dis dysfunction because of this viral infection leaving some kind of damage behind in the brain? You know, I've had enough patients come to my clinic um, complaining of late symptoms of, of COVID related to, to cognitive complaints to believe that this is very real. I'm not sure I completely understand the pathophysiology of this yet, except to say that major stressors to the brain, like a massive systemic infection, whether it's a, the direct effect of the virus or if it's the effect of the immune system responding to the virus or both, clearly can have both acute and long-term sequelae. And I think that, you know, treating these invisible symptoms, understanding them so that we can effectively treat them uh, is going to be very important for a very large number of people. Dr. Schrag, I'm wondering how your colleagues have reacted to uh, your concerns about those Western blot images. That We certainly have seen some um, excitement, shall I say, in the, uh, the, the press that's available to uh, lay people, the scientific press that's available to lay people. But I'm wondering what, what you have heard, how people have reacted. You know, I think that there's quite a bit of introspection around the issue. I think generally speaking, um, people agree that the concerns are legitimate and well-founded. I've not had people bring to me a, a very clear defense suggesting that the, the concerns that I and others raised were not properly founded. And there's certainly been a lot of debate about the significance of, of those papers and what they mean to the field. But I think generally my colleagues and I agree on the critical importance of research integrity. We have to start from a foundation where we all agree that the data has to be right and it has to be honestly presented. And I think that uh, that, that conversation is important. 
And finally, the take-home message, the idea that, you know, science, it's all about testing hypotheses, throwing out the failures, starting over from scratch. What should we learn from your work and from future research? Well, I think that it's easy to exalt science and scientists, but you know, it's a human endeavor. And like any other human endeavor, there's going to be error and there's going to be a certain amount of mischief. And I think that we need to be aware of that and we need to be ready to correct the field when that happens, whether it's error or mischief, and try to get back on track as quickly as possible. But I also think it, it, it speaks to the future of not only our discipline, but, but other related disciplines, that there is a value to allowing and promoting some degree of dissent, allowing different ideas to, to, to compete against each other and develop more than one um, line of thinking around these very complex problems. Because even a very promising hypothesis like the amyloid hypothesis isn't always going to pan out. In fact, statistically, any of any one of them is unlikely to pan out as a clinical treatment. And so I think diversifying uh, the range of targets that we're willing to look at is, is, is very, very important. Dr. Matthew Schrag, thank you very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Matthew Schrag, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and Director of the Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy Clinic. We turn now to a different guest and a different theory of brain biochemistry. Dr. Joanna Moncrief is Professor of Critical and Social Psychiatry at University College London. She's one of the founders and the co-chairperson of the Critical Psychiatry Network. She's authored numerous papers and several books, including The Myth of the Chemical Cure and The Bitterest Pills, The Troubling Story of Antipsychotic Drugs. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Joanna Moncrief. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Moncrief, for a very long time, several decades, neuroscientists, clinicians, psychiatrists, and patients uh, believed in what I'll call the serotonin theory of depression. We, we recently encountered an article. It was titled, Serotonin, the Happiness Hormone. And it described SSRI antidepressants like Prozac working by boosting serotonin levels. You and your colleagues recently wrote an article, quote, the serotonin theory of depression, end quote. What is it and what is the evidence to support it? So the serotonin theory of depression is the idea that depression is caused by low levels or activity of the brain chemical known as serotonin. And this has been a theory that was widely popularized by the pharmaceutical industry in the 1990s when they brought on a range of antidepressants that supposedly worked by boosting serotonin levels. So there was a huge uh, publicity campaign that put out the message that, serot- that, that depression was caused by a, chemi- by a chemical imbalance, particularly of serotonin, or might be caused by this imbalance of serotonin. So that was the theory. And 
what we did was get together all the research from all the different areas that have looked at the relationship between depression and serotonin. And we did this because there have been rumors, I suppose, going around for a long time that, in fact, the theory was not supported by the evidence. But no one had done a really comprehensive overview of the research in order to be able to make a definitive judgment about it. So we looked at all the main areas of research that have looked at links between serotonin and depression and basically found that none of those areas provided any convincing evidence that there was any relationship between serotonin and depression. And they certainly didn't support the theory that depression was linked with or caused by low serotonin concentrations or activity. Dr. Moncrief, I'm puzzled. If the evidence is so weak, why has this theory been so strong for so long? So that's a really important question. And part of the reason is the very efficient and very wide-reaching efforts of the pharmaceutical industry during the 1990s, and uh, which really brought, brought this theory to public attention through television advertisements and lots of online uh, sites and materials. But another reason is that the psychiatric profession have wanted to promote this theory or something like it. They've wanted to promote the idea that antidepressants work by rectifying some sort of biological, underlying biological abnormality. And serotonin was, abnormalities of serotonin um, were one of the main candidates for uh, a biological abnormality in depression. So the psychiatric profession supported the pharmaceutical industry in putting out this message about um, the way that antidepressants might affect people. And when it started to be rumoured that actually the evidence didn't support this theory, the profession didn't acknowledge that it was false and, and, and didn't change or rectify their messaging. Well, of course, if you have a mechanism of action that you can point to, it's much easier to justify your prescription, I suppose. Yes, and I, and I think another reason why this theory has been so popular is there has been a desire among the medical profession and among the general public to believe that depression could was a simple biochemical brain problem that could be rectified with a pill. It's a nice, simple message. It's linked with a solution. And it means you don't have to think about all the reasons why people might be depressed, all the, all the difficulties that people have that might be much more difficult to address. Now, how, how do we think Antidepressants like fluoxetine, which was sold in this country under the brand name Prozac, or uh, paroxetine or sertraline, how, how do they affect serotonin levels? So that's another good question. And the answer is that we don't really know. There is some uh, evidence from animal studies that immediately after you give one of these antidepressants, there is an increase in the serotonin 
released uh, into the spaces around the nerve cells where it has its action. But longer term, the the evidence is much less consistent. Some studies seem to suggest that serotonin is still levels are still increased. Some studies suggest they're actually reduced again, and there's some evidence that. Uh, even even possibly serotonin might be reduced in the long term by uh, SSRI type antidepressants, but 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 overall the evidence is inconsistent and we're not really sure is the answer. Now I, I want our listeners to understand where you're coming from because if if I'm not mistaken you are a professor of critical and social psychiatry at the University College London. You work as a consultant in community psychiatry. This is the water that you have been swimming in for a very long time. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm a practicing psychiatrist, so I, I see patients with depression and lots of other problems. And I'm uh, also an academic and researcher. And my main interest for a long time has been psychiatric drugs, the drugs that we prescribe for mental health problems, including antidepressants. And for a long time, I have been concerned that the evidence that antidepressants are beneficial is very weak and really doesn't support the mass prescribing of these drugs that we've seen over the last few decades. And I'm not the only person who thinks that. In fact, over the last few years, there have been uh, quite a few publications in prominent medical journals by a whole number of leading authors suggesting that antidepressant effects are really not very consistent or and maybe not really worthwhile. You're listening to Dr. Joanna Moncrief, Professor of Critical and Social Psychiatry at University College London. She spoke with us from her home in London. After the break, Dr. Moncrief describes the consequences when people believe that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance. Do they see medications as a quick fix? If we ignore talk therapy, is that a big mistake? How common is it for people to have a hard time stopping their antidepressant? How would rethinking the serotonin hypothesis change the treatment of depression? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Thank you. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're considering ideas about how the brain works. How good is the evidence behind the serotonin theory of depression? Dr. Joanna Moncrief is professor of critical and social psychiatry at University College London and works as a consultant in community psychiatry. She's one of the founders and the co-chairperson of the Critical Psychiatry Network. She's the author of The Myth of the Chemical Cure and A Straight-Talking Introduction to Psychiatric Drugs. Well, Dr. Moncrief, in July, you and your colleagues published, speaking of prominent medical journals, published a review in Molecular Psychiatry. And in it, you suggested some consequences that might happen when people believe that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Would you review those for us, please? Yes. So so we were referring to some other research in that paper that suggests that if people are told that their depression is due to a chemical imbalance, they have a more pessimistic outlook. They are less likely to think that they will be able to recover And they are less likely to think that anything that they do is going to help towards their recovery. So we were, we were quoting other, other research and, and and that is what that research shows. I think your colleagues are also captivated by this idea of a chemical imbalance because it, it seems like this is a quick fix. Well, it may take a few weeks, but once the antidepressant kicks in, I don't have to worry about talking therapy. I don't have to worry about any of the other issues that may be going on in this person's life. You know, here, take a pill. It'll fix the imbalance and everything will be fine. It seems like when people are having real problems in their lives that could conceivably be addressed by talking therapy, that we kind of we miss the boat. Yeah, we're 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 leaving a very important part of the equation out. Yes, absolutely. So I think to understand the the, the appeal of the chemical imbalance theory of depression, we need to go back to what was happening in the nineteen eighties when drugs called benzodiazepines, that is, drugs like Valium, Librium. Um, uh, what's lorazepam called? Xanax. Xanax, Xanax, thank you. Um, So drugs like that, the benzodiazepines, were very widely prescribed. And there was a huge scandal because it became clear that although they had been said to be non-addictive when they were introduced, it became clear that they really were addictive and lots of people had become addicted to them or dependent on them and were having real difficulties in getting off them. And it also became apparent that they had been doled out like smarters to people who were having 
understandable problems in their lives that and it was the problems that really needed addressing. Now, Dr. Moncrief, before we go any farther, we're not familiar with Smarties. What are they? Oh, sorry. <laughs> they're a sweet. They're, 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 they're a common sweet. So they were being doled out like sweets, like candy. Okay, like thank candy. you. Yes, yes, <laughs> to, to people. And um, so that whole scandal brought the activity of giving drugs to people with emotional problems into disrepute. And it was because of that, that the pharmaceutical industry really had to come up with another narrative to persuade people that taking drugs for emotional problems was really okay, and that they should be doing it. And that's where the chemical imbalance narrative came from. And I think when you see it in that light, you can see you can see why why doctors got behind it and uh you, you know and, and wh- why it was important to really uh, retrieve the reputation of using drugs for mental health problems uh, but as you say not only was it false because it wasn't based on any convincing evidence it also completely obscured all the problems that people were having with their lives that actually were what were what and are what needs addressing when someone presents with depression or anxiety or another similar mental health problem. And sometimes those problems need addressing with psychotherapy, but sometimes they need other sorts of, of solutions. It, it depends on the individual and the individual situation. Absolutely. You mentioned that people have a hard time getting off of benzodiazepines. Not everyone, not all the time, but frequently. And what I'd like to ask you is about getting off these antidepressants. We have heard from people who have had difficulty with that. Is that common? Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, again, antidepressants were brought in with a message that they were not addictive, like the benzodiazepines, that they were different. And yet again, only a few years later, we start to get reports that actually people are having real difficulties in, in getting off them. Some seem to be worse than others. Dr. Moncrief, how would rethinking the serotonin hypothesis affect depression treatment? In, in other words, how would you and your colleagues deal with mental health issues and in particular depression if we put that theory aside? So, first of all, I'd like to say that if we put that theory aside, and if we also accept that all the other theories about the possible biological origins of depression and how antidepressants might be working on them, if we acknowledge that all those other theories are also unsupported, then the first thing is that we have to acknowledge that antidepressants are drugs that affect the brain and that change the normal state of the brain and therefore change our normal feelings and sensations and behaviours. So the first thing that ditching the serotonin hypothesis uh, should make us note is that antidepressants and other drugs prescribed for mental health problems are psychoactive drugs, that is mind-altering drugs, that change our normal mental states and change our brain, our, our normal brain chemistry, and may therefore have harmful effects, 
when they are taken on a long-term basis as other drugs for uh, as other drugs that change the mind and the brain have drugs like alcohol and recreational drugs we know that when you take these drugs day in day out for many years you get into all sorts of problems with them including of course dependency so i think that's the first thing to to recognize that we need to recognize we need to acknowledge that uh, the drugs we've been using are not drugs that are targeting some underlying biological abnormality the very opposite they're drugs that are actually changing the normal state of the brain and our normal mental activity as a consequence so how else if if we if we accept that doing that that interfering with brain chemistry is probably not the best way to deal with mental health problems how else should they be uh, addressed um well, the first thing I would say is that we need to look, take each individual as an individual and we need to look carefully at their context and at what their mental health problems are signaling about their situation. What is it that they are reacting to? What is wrong in their life? And how can we help support that person to address it? That's, that's the main thing we need to ask. Depression is an emotional response to a person's circumstances. So the first thing is to ask about the circumstances and whether they can be changed. Of course, our emotional responses are also colored by our personalities, by our development, everything that's happened to us as a child and subsequently, and partly by our genetic makeup as well. That that determines to some extent how we are going to react to stress and things like that in our lives. Um, So we can also help to strengthen people's ability to manage their emotions and strengthen people's resilience through forms of psychotherapy. But also things like exercise are known to be extremely good for managing emotions. So exercise and lifestyle uh, changes can also be encouraged. So Dr. Moncrief, We've heard from so many patients that when they try to stop an SSRI or what we call an SNRI, uh, antidepressant type medications, that they experience a range of withdrawal symptoms. We gussy that up. We we have a, a, a medical term. It's called discontinuation syndrome, which somehow sounds more more sanitary than withdrawal but how how do patients get off these medications how how would you advise a, a patient to do that in in a way that won't cause a great deal of discomfort both physical and psychological yeah so when antidepressants were first introduced it was said that they were not dependence forming not addictive and it subsequently became apparent that they are and the latest research suggests that around 50% of people who take them will have difficulties getting off them. It's probably more difficult to come off if you've been on them for longer. Uh, and there are some antidepressants that seem to be worse than others at inducing uh, really difficult and unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. So the advice now about coming off is that people should come off very slowly, particularly when they get down to lower doses, because the the higher doses have 
less relative effect on the brain than the lower doses. So you have to be very careful and very slow when you're reducing the lower doses. And that can be difficult because some antidepressants come only come in preparations that um, only come in strengths that are relatively high. Uh, then the vaccine being being an example affects or uh, the lowest dose is 37.5 milligrams, which still seems to be um, from the effects that people experience both taking it and coming off it, um, a, a substantial dose. So sometimes people might need to move on to liquid preparations of the drug they're taking. And if those are not available, people might have to resort to cutting up tablets. And people have even done things like opened capsules and counted out beads in order to reduce their drugs in a, in a slow way when they get down to those lower doses. But that's what is recommended. And hopefully that will enable people to avoid the worst withdrawal symptoms and also to avoid um, getting into trouble with really prolonged severe withdrawal symptoms which seem to occur in some people who stop the stop the drugs uh, the withdrawal seems to be really prolonged over months and sometimes years for some people now dr. Moncrief I would have to tell you that the United States Food and Drug Administration has not been very helpful when it comes to guiding physicians, your, your colleagues, on how to discontinue such drugs. And the pharmaceutical manufacturers that make them have not been very helpful in guiding clinicians or patients in that process. But we've heard of something called the, I think it's the Ashton Method, uh, named after a psychiatrist in, in the UK, one of your colleagues, yeah, a, a pharmacologist, actually, she was, yeah. And that she had come up with a very gradual withdrawal process that helps people not just with antidepressants, but also with anti-anxiety agents. Uh, have you ever heard of this process and, and how helpful is it? Because if if your colleagues don't, don't have a, a plan and, and the FDA and the drug companies don't have a plan, it seems like your colleagues and or patients themselves have had to come up with some kind of a strategy. Yes. So um, so you're referring to what's known as the Ashton Manual developed by Heather Ashton, which was a manual to help people come off benzodiazepines. She developed it in back in the 1990s. Uh, and my colleague, Dr. Mark Horowitz, who, who um, was another author on the serotonin paper and who I work closely with, has basically applied the same principles to antidepressants. And those principles are now published on the UK's Royal College of Psychiatrists website. They have a section on how to discontinue antidepressants, which was written by Dr. Horowitz and follows the principles of the Ashton Manual, that is making very slow reductions as you get down to those lower doses. So there is some information now out there for uh, for doctors who want to help people come off antidepressants, which is uh, about time. One last question, I think, Dr. Moncrief. How have your colleagues responded to uh, your paper in molecular psychiatry? Some of my colleagues have been very angry that I have dared to draw any implications about the use of antidepressants. I think they just wanted me to say, well, it's not serotonin, but it's probably something similar. 
or it's probably serotonin, but it's just all a bit more complicated. They did not want me to point out that we really cannot justify this idea that antidepressants target some underlying biological abnormality. And I have had to conclude that they really don't want people to understand the nature of the drugs that they are taking. They don't want people to recognize that antidepressants are drugs that change the normal state of the brain, the normal state of brain chemistry. And I think that's extraordinary and very shocking. I agree. Dr. Joanna Moncrief, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Joanna Moncrief. She's professor of critical and social psychiatry at University College London and works as a consultant in community psychiatry. Dr. Moncrief is one of the founders and the co-chairperson of the Critical Psychiatry Network. She's authored numerous papers and several books, including The Myth of the Chemical Cure, The Bitterest Pills, The Troubling Story of Antipsychotic Drugs, and A Straight-Talking Introduction to Psychiatric Drugs. You'll find a link to her molecular psychiatry paper from our website. Earlier, we spoke with Dr. Matthew Schrag. He's Assistant Professor of Neurology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and Director of the Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy Clinic. There's a Science Magazine article about his controversial findings regarding altered or duplicated images of amyloid beta. You'll find the link on our website in the notes for today's show. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,318. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments to let us know what you think about today's interviews. We want to remind listeners that some people get great benefit from antidepressant medications. What's more? No one should ever stop any medicine without consulting the prescriber. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday mornings. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast, and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. We want to thank you very much for listening. And we want to invite you to please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. 
All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.